The kickstart question, discover the power of an opening question that gets the conversation happening fast and deep. One of the reasons managers don't coach more often than they do is that they don't know how to start. There's that nagging sense that if you could just get going, you'd be fine. But how do you get going? And if you've ever felt stuck in a conversation that seemed a little superficial or boring or simply not that useful, then one of these three situations might be at play, the small talk tango, the ossified agenda, or the default diagnosis. The small talk tango. Make no mistake, there's a place for small talk. It's a way of reconnecting and engaging with a person, of building relationships, of remembering that other people are human and reminding them that you're human, too. And yet you've felt that sinking feeling when you realize that you've used up 8 of your 15 allotted minutes talking trivia. Those moments when you think, seriously, do we always need to discuss that, say, it's cold and snowing in Canada during the winter? Or that sports team, will they ever get any better? Small talk might be a useful way to warm up, but it's rarely the bridge that leads to a conversation that matters. The ossified agenda. This situation is commonly found in standing meetings, same time, same people, same place, same agenda. It becomes a dreary recitation of facts and figures, a report that sheds little light and seems to drain energy from the room. The agenda might have been perfect a week, a month or a year ago, but now it's putting process in front of what really matters. Answers are closed rooms, and questions are open doors that invite us in Tilda Nancy Willard. The default diagnosis. There's no question or conversation about what the issue is. You're sure you know what it is. Or they're sure they know what it is. Or maybe you both think you know what it is. And so, bang. You're off to the races, pursuing something that, if you're lucky, is approximately-ish the real topic. This response is comfortable and feels like progress because you're solving something. But you're in the wrong hole. Digging faster or smarter isn't going to help. The kickstart question, what's on your mind? An almost fail-safe way to start a chat that quickly turns into a real conversation is the question, what's on your mind? It's something of a Goldilocks question, walking a fine line, so it is neither too open and broad nor too narrow and confining. Because it's open, it invites people to get to the heart of the matter and share what's most important to them. You're not telling them or guiding them. You're showing them the trust and granting them the autonomy to make a choice for themselves. And yet the question is focused, too. It's not an invitation to tell you anything or everything. It's an encouragement to go right away to what's exciting, what's provoking anxiety, what's all-consuming, what's waking them up at 4 a.m., what's got their hearts beating fast. It's a question that says, let's talk about the thing that matters most. It's a question that dissolves ossified agendas, sidesteps small talk and defeats the default diagnosis. The ah question, the best coaching question in the world and the power of three short words. The ah question, and what else? They seem innocuous. Three little words. But, and what else? The ah question, has magical properties. With seemingly no effort, it creates more, more wisdom, more insights, more self-awareness, more possibilities, out of thin air. There are three reasons it has the impact that it does, more options can lead to better decisions, you rein yourself in, and you buy yourself time. If you've watched television in the last 70 years, you'll have bumped into Billy Mays, Vince Offer or Ron Popeil. They were TV pitch artists selling you the best dicer, grater, cleaning product or mop-up towel that $19.99 plus shipping and handling could buy. Ron Popeil is the grandfather of them all, and his stock phrase was, but wait, there's more. 
While no one here needs you to buy the shamwow, you do want to remember that the first answer someone gives you is almost never the only answer, and it's rarely the best answer. You may think that's obvious, but it's less so than you realize. Ask the right questions if you're going to find the right answers tilde Vanessa Redgrave. Four practical tips for asking, and what else? To make sure the magic of awe happens, follow a few simple guidelines. Stay curious, stay genuine just because you've now got a fabulous question to use, that doesn't mean you can slip into a boring groove when asking it. Ask it one more time let's start with the understanding that as a general rule, people ask this question too few times rather than too many. And the way to master this habit is to try it out and experiment and see what works. As a guideline, I typically ask it at least three times, and rarely more than five. Recognize success at some stage of the conversation, someone's going to say to you, there is nothing else. When that happens, a perfectly reasonable reaction is a rapid heartbeat and slight panic. Reframe that reaction as a success. There is nothing else is a response you should be seeking. It means you've reached the end of this line of inquiry. Take a breath, take a bow, and go on to another question. Move on when it's time if you can feel the energy going out of the conversation, you know it's time to move on from this angle. A strong, wrap it up, variation of, and what else, is, is there anything else? That version of, and what else, invites closure, while still leaving the door open for whatever else needs to be said. The focus question, how to stop spending so much time and effort solving the wrong problem. The world of science is full of accidental, brilliant discoveries. William Perkin was trying to cure malaria and ended up creating the first synthetic dye, Mavane. Andrew Fleming failed to tidy up his lab properly before heading off on vacation, and on his return found our first antibiotic, penicillin. The post-it note owes its success to a failed superglue. Viagra was originally created to deal with angina. Sadly, this synchronicity is not what happens in your organization. If your organizational culture is like every organizational culture I've ever seen, and it is, then it's a place that loves getting things done. Making it happen. Crossing it off the to-do list. And if you're like most of the managers the author has ever worked with and for, and, for that matter, been, then you genuinely do want to figure it out. The challenge is that with the years of conditioning you've had, as soon as you start hearing what a doctor might call the presenting challenge, every fiber of your body is twitching with a desire to fix it, solve it, offer a solution to it. It's Pavlovian. Which is why people in organizations like yours around the world are working very hard and coming up with decent solutions to problems that just don't matter, and why the real challenges often go unaddressed. When people start talking to you about the challenge at hand, what's essential to remember is that what they're laying out for you is rarely the actual problem. And when you start jumping in to fix things, things go off the rails in three ways. You work on the wrong problem, you do the work your team should be doing, and the work doesn't get done. Without a good question, a good answer has no place to go tilde Clayton Christensen. The focus question, what's the real challenge here for you? This is the question that will help slow down the rush to action, so you spend time solving the real problem, not just the first problem. It's no accident that it's phrased the way it is. Here's how it builds to become such a useful question. What's the challenge? Curiosity is taking you in the right direction but phrased like this question is too vague. It will most likely generate either an obvious answer or a somewhat abstract answer or a combination of the two, neither of which is typically helpful. What's the real challenge here? Implied here is that there are a number of challenges to choose from, and you have to find the one that matters most. 
Phrased like this, the question will always slow people down and make them think more deeply. What's the real challenge here for you? It's too easy for people to pontificate about the high-level or abstract challenges in a situation. The for you is what pins the question to the person you're talking to. It keeps the question personal and makes the person you're talking to wrestle with her struggle and what she needs to figure out. Stick to questions starting with what. Peter Senge was big in the 1990s when his book The Fifth Discipline and its theme of the learning organization caught the imagination of executives everywhere. One of the tools he introduced was called The Five Whys, a self-explanatory process to work backward through a story to find a root cause of a pernicious, recurring problem. Simon Sinek carried on that theme with his popular book, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. He also has a great TED Talk. For Sinek, organizations must have as their foundation absolute clarity about the why of their existence if they're going to inspire people, customers and employees both, to stay engaged with their brand. Ignore both authors. Yes, there's a place for asking why, in organizational life. And no, it's not while you're in a focused conversation with the people you're managing. Here are two good reasons. You put them on the defensive. Get the tone even slightly wrong and suddenly your why come across as what the hell were you thinking? It's only downhill from there. You're trying to solve the problem. You ask why because you want more detail. You want more detail because you want to fix the problem. And suddenly you're back in the vicious circles of over-dependence and overwhelm. If you're not trying to fix things, you don't need the backstory. Stick to questions starting with what and avoid questions starting with why. It's no accident that six of the seven essential questions are what questions. An irresistible one, two, three combination, the first three questions that can combine to become a robust script for your coaching conversation. You'll be surprised and delighted at just how often these are exactly the right questions to ask. Open with, what's on your mind? The perfect way to start, the question is open but focused. Check in, is there anything else on your mind? Give the person an option to share additional concerns. Then begin to focus, so, what's the real challenge here for you? Already the conversation will deepen. Your job now is to find what's most useful to look at. Ask, and what else, is the real challenge here for you? Trust me, the person will have something. And there may be more. Probe again, is there anything else? You'll have most of what matters in front of you now. So get to the heart of it and ask. So, what's the real challenge here for you? The lazy question, discover the question that will make you more useful to those you manage, while working easier you're a good person, and you're doing your very best to let your people thrive. You want to, add value, and be useful. You like to feel that you're contributing. However, there's being helpful, and then there's being, helpful, as in stepping in and taking over. And way too often, you get suckered into doing the latter. Then everyone, you, the person you're, helping, the organization, pays a price for your attempted helpfulness. Your good intentions often end up contributing to a relentless cycle of exhaustion, frustration and, ironically, reduced impact. When we're in rescuer mode, we're constantly leaping in to solve problems, jumping in to offer advice, taking over responsibilities that others should rightfully keep for themselves. We do it with good intentions, we're just trying to help, to, add value, as managers. But you can already see the price that's being paid by both sides. You're exhausted, and they're irritated. You're limiting opportunities for growth and for expanding the potential of those you're working with. More provocatively, you might be coming to understand that rescuers create victims, though we want to believe that it's the other way around, which is also true, but not only true. The lazy question, how can I help? The power of, how can I help, is twofold. 
First, you're forcing your colleague to make a direct and clear request. That may be useful to him. He might not be entirely sure why he started this conversation with you. Sure, he knows he wants something, but until you asked the question, he didn't know that he wasn't exactly clear on what he wanted. Unless he was, in which case the question is useful for you because now you can decide whether you want to honor the request, second, and possibly even more valuable, it stops you from thinking that you know how best to help and leaping into action. That's the classic rescuer behavior. Like, and what else? This question is a self-management tool to keep you curious and keep you lazy. Too much of your day is spent doing things you think people want you to do. Sometimes you're completely off base, but that's not the worst of it because that gets sorted out relatively quickly. More dangerous is when you're only slightly wrong. That's when you find yourself kind of doing what they want, but not enough, so it's really useful, and not so wrong that someone tells you to stop, be blunt, the more direct version of, how can I help, is, what do you want from me? If, how can I help, is James Bond in a tuxedo, then, what do you want from me, is Bond in bust out of the baddies evil lair mode. It strips the conversation down to understanding the essential exchange, what do you want? What do I want? And now, what shall we do about that? But be careful you can likely guess how, what do you want from me, lands will depend in no small part on the tone of voice in which it's asked. A way to soften this question, as with all questions, is to use the phrase, out of curiosity. What that does is shift the question from perhaps coming across as an inquisition to being a more noble inquiry. Other phrases that can have a similar softening effect on the question being asked are, just so I know, or, to help me understand better, or even, to make sure that I'm clear. The anxiety of asking, how can I help, and how to manage it the biggest worry people have about asking, how can I help, is the range of potential answers, I need you to do this horrible, unreasonable, impossible task. I'd like you to have the difficult conversation I'm avoiding, can you please give me all of your budget, here's one extra thing for your already towering pile of responsibilities, what's essential to realize is that regardless of the answer you receive, you have a range of responses available to you, yes, is one, of course. You can always say yes, but you don't have to say yes, and your sense of obligation to say yes is the source of your anxiety, no, I can't do that, is another option. Having the courage to say no is one of the ways you stop being so helpful, I can't do that, but I could do, insert your counter offer, is a nice middle ground. Don't just give them a no, give them some other choices, and finally, you can just buy yourself some time. Let me think about that. I'm not sure, I'll need to check a few things out. The strategic question, in which you get to the heart of overwhelm and discover the question at the heart of every good strategy. The strategic question, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? This question is more complex than it sounds, which accounts for its potential. To begin with, you're asking people to be clear and committed to their yes. Too often, we kinda sorta half-heartedly agree to something, or more likely, there's a complete misunderstanding in the room as to what's been agreed to. Have you ever heard or uttered the phrase, I never said I was going to do that? Me too, so to ask, let's be clear, what exactly are you saying yes to, brings the commitment out of the shadows. If you then ask, what could being fully committed to this idea look like, it brings things into even sharper, bolder focus. And in fact, you're uncovering two types of no answers here, the no of omission and the no of commission. The first type of no applies to the options that are automatically eliminated by your saying yes. If you say yes to this meeting, you're saying no to something else that's happening at the same time as the meeting. Understanding this kind of no helps you understand the implications of the decision. 
The second type of know you're uncovering, which will likely take the conversation another level deeper, is what you now need to say to make the yes happen. It's all too easy to shove another yes into the bag of our overcommitted lives, hoping that in a Harry Potter magical sort of way it will somehow all be accommodated. This second type of no puts the spotlight on how to create the space and focus, energy, and resources that you'll need to truly do that yes. How to say no when you can't say no. For most of us, there are two groups of people to whom it is easiest to say no those closest to us, spouses and kids, and those distant from us, hello, evening telemarketers. It's much harder to say no to everyone else. Which, unfortunately, tends to be everyone we work with. That difficulty is exacerbated by most corporate cultures, where the default answer is yes or, at the bare minimum, probably. The secret to saying no is to shift the focus and learn how to say yes more slowly. What gets us into trouble is how quickly we commit, without fully understanding what we're getting ourselves into or even why we're being asked. Saying yes more slowly means being willing to stay curious before committing. Which means asking more questions, why are you asking me? Whom else have you asked? When you say this is urgent, what do you mean? According to what standard does this need to be completed? By when? If I couldn't do all of this but could do just a part, what part would you have me do? What do you want me to take off my plate so I can do this? Being willing to stay curious like this will likely provoke one of four types of responses, three of which might be helpful. The first response and the one that's not useful is that the person tells you to stop with the annoying questions and just get on with the task. Depending on the person, the culture and the urgency of the task, sometimes it's clear that you're expected to do what you're told. The second response is that he has good answers to all your questions. That's a win for you because it means that the request was thoughtful, and he's not asking you just because you have a pulse and yours was the first email address that started to populate the to address line. Third, he doesn't have the answers but might be willing to find them for you. That's good. That buys you time, at a minimum, and it's quite possible that he'll never get back to you. And finally, he may just say this, you're too much like hard work. I'm going to find someone who says yes more quickly than you do. The learning question, in which you discover how to finish any conversation in a way that will make you look like a genius. As a manager and a leader, you want people to get stuff done. But you want more than that. You want them to learn so that they become more competent, more self-sufficient, and more successful. Conveniently, they want that as well. But helping people learn is difficult. Sometimes it feels like even though you've hit them across the head repeatedly with an obvious concept or a shovel perhaps, somehow the point you've been trying to make hasn't stuck. Here's why people don't really learn when you tell them something. They don't even really learn when they do something. They start learning, start creating new neural pathways, only when they have a chance to recall and reflect on what just happened. The learning question, what was most useful for you? Academic Chris Argyris coined the term for this double-loop learning more than 40 years ago. If the first loop is trying to fix a problem, the second loop is creating a learning moment about the issue at hand. It's in the second loop where people pull back and find the insight. New connections get made. Aha moments happen. Your job as a manager and a leader is to help create the space for people to have those learning moments. And to do that, you need a question that drives this double-loop learning. That question is, what was most useful for you? The neuroscience of learning. If you spend any time in the world of learning and development, you know that one of the deepest frustrations is the low retention rate of knowledge. Way too often, most people forget almost everything pretty much the moment they walk out of the corporate classroom. 
A week later, and even the most critical wisdom and insights so diligently presented are but faint and distant echoes. You've probably experienced exactly this on the other side of the classroom desk, where you've given up a day or two for a class, and the material has washed through you and over you, leaving very little behind. But we know how to make the learning experience more successful, thanks to insights from neuroscience and psychology. Josh Davis and colleagues from the Neuro Leadership Institute have created the AGES model to explain the four main neurological drivers of longer-term memory. AGES stands for attention, generation, emotion, and spacing. What's useful here for us is the G, generation. This is the act of creating and sharing your own connections to new and presented ideas. When we take time and effort to generate knowledge and find an answer rather than just reading it, our memory retention is increased. Why, what was most useful for you, tops the list. There are a number of questions you could ask to help drive this generative and retrieval process to embed the learning. What did you learn? What was the key insight? What do you want to remember? And, what's important to capture, are some of the more obvious ways to help people do that, and they're all good questions. But, what was most useful for you, is like a superfood, kale perhaps, compared with the mere iceberg lettuce goodness of the other questions. What was most useful, helps hits the spot in the following ways. It assumes the conversation was useful. Winston Churchill said that people occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. That's equally true about the conversations you're having with those around you. There's wisdom to be found, but only if you hang around for a moment to take a look. The learning question immediately frames what just happened as something that was useful and creates a moment in which to figure out what it was. It asks people to identify the big thing that was most useful. Less, rather than more, is often better when you're giving feedback. If you list 12 things that could be improved, everyone moves into overwhelm mode. More effective is finding the OBT, the one big thing, that's worth remembering. This question will typically have the person focus on the one or two key takeaways from the conversation. It makes it personal. Adding, for you, to the question takes it from the abstract to the personal, from the objective to the subjective. Now you're helping people create new neural pathways. And of course, people are telling themselves what was useful, rather than you're telling them what you think should be most useful. The former will always sound like better advice. It gives you feedback. Listen to the answer you get, because it's useful not just for the coachee but for you as well. It will give you guidance on what to do more of next time, and it will reassure you, if you need it, that you're being useful even when you're not giving advice but are asking questions instead. Conclusion the kickstart question is the way to start any conversation that's both focused and open. The ah question, the best coaching question in the world, works as a self-management tool for you, and as a boost for the other six questions here. The focus question is about getting to the heart of the challenge, so you've got your attention on what really matters. The lazy question will save you hours, while the strategic question will save hours for those you're working with. And the learning question, which pairs with the kickstart question will ensure that everyone finds their interactions with you more useful. Make these essential questions part of your management repertoire and everyday conversations, you'll work less hard and have more impact, and your people, your boss, your career and your life outside work will thank you for it. But the real secret sauce here is building a habit of curiosity. The change of behavior that's going to serve you most powerfully is simply this, a little less advice, a little more curiosity. Find your own questions, find your own voice. And above all, build your own coaching habit.